Welcome to season two. Yakov, please cut that. <laughs> no, no, please don't. We are rocking and rolling here at Kosher Money. Welcome to episode 11, a brand new season. We did a great job, might I say, in season one, but season two is going to be even bigger and better. We focused a lot in episodes one through 10 on how to manage your expenses. We focused on jobs in one episode, but people want to know about business, starting a business. Is that for me? Should I not start a business? Who better to sit down with than Noam Wasserman, the dean of YU's business school. For those watching on YouTube, he was on the cover of the Mishpacha in November 2018. Crazy story. I was not on the cover, but my name was on the cover. Same edition. Mo Mernix 5 to 9 with digital marketing guru, Gurups, Ellie Langer. And lo and behold, I didn't realize until after the episode, I sent um, Dean Wasserman a photo that we were actually on the same cover. But we also got feedback from people that people weren't necessarily sure who the guest was. So when we start future episodes, you're going to hear their life story a little bit, why we thought they were a good fit to discuss that particular topic. And Noam Wasserman is a genius when it comes to startups, founders, co-founders, who's the right fit for your um, founding team, how to split equity. Very insightful episode. I think you'll like... No, I usually say that, right? I think you'll like this episode. But without further ado, season two. Being a Jew? Awesome. Managing personal finances? Not so awesome. Welcome to Kosher Money. Okay, another episode of Kosher Money. Today we're going to dig into the big world of business. Who should start a business, own a business? We thought no no one else can come on to this episode than Dean Noam Wasserman. Noam, tell us a little bit about your background. How did we find you? And so uh, thank you, first of all, Ellie, for uh, having me. Everything that you do to educate the community about key knowledge that uh, will help them improve their lives. So you should call the things that you're doing with that. Uh, I actually started life as an engineer, then got introduced to business. Brought the two of them together, got degrees in both, uh, then worked for five years at a bunch of entrepreneurial stuff. Then went back to school, thought I was just doing it for two years for my MBA. That's turned into now a lifelong uh, commitment. Uh, after the MBA, got my PhD. Uh, then was on the faculty of Harvard Business School for 13 years. Then went back home to LA to found a center around the research that I've been doing for a couple of decades on founders and the early decisions they make. Uh, in particular, the early decisions make that they make that tend to go awry. And so how can we educate them about how they can make better decisions is a core focus of what I've had since then. And now a little bit more than two years ago, came on board as the, the dean at uh, the Sai Sim School of Business at Yeshiva University. Uh, found a tremendous team there with the faculty and the administration and the partnering with the students. And we've been able to do some great stuff over the last couple of years as a team. So uh, that's that's what got me to here. So someone calls you up, you're in the middle of your business day, someone went through the schooling system, and now they're ready to start their own business, or at least they think they're ready. What advice do you give people to start a business? And when do you think maybe someone shouldn't actually start that business? Okay, so key uh, several levels of thought that have to go into the decision about whether it's for you and 
uh, when to be doing it and other things like that. A key thing to separate out is the way in which do you have a roadmap of yourself, the self-awareness about what are your strengths, what are your weaknesses? Do you have a roadmap of the key decisions along the way of founding that you're going to be facing? And that's where, getting back into the research I've been doing the last couple of decades, the early decisions that founders face that tend to cause problems for them happen to fall into a couple of buckets of things. This is something that, to me, uh, Steve Jobs, the dear departed founder of Apple, captured extremely well and helps frame a lot of the things that I've been doing. Um, Steve said that, follow your heart, but check it with your head. And unfortunately, a lot of times when we're starting to look at entrepreneurship, we celebrate the instinctive founder, we celebrate gut-level decisions, and we celebrate the heart. And what Steve was highlighting, and this is what has been a recurring theme across all the research that I've been doing, is that unfortunately, especially for the types of decisions that I like to take a look at, they happen to be the people decisions, and I'll get a little bit into why my attention was brought to those, that when it comes to making those decisions, the head and the heart diverge. And it's almost always that the heart-driven decisions, the gut, the instinct, is wrong, is the thing that causes more problems, is the one that heightens risk. The entrepreneur is hoping that it's going to heighten the potential of the venture and bring more success. But actually, a recurring theme is that when head and heart diverge and you follow the heart, you're getting yourself into more trouble when it comes to those decisions. And so how do you... How do you know that you're not making an emotional decision? Is there a website where you have this how-to, follow this checklist? How should people know? They've never done this before. Yeah, no, that's one of the key things of the second part of the roadmap that's missing. So there's the roadmap of yourself and your self-awareness, and then there's the roadmap of those key decisions along the road. And unfortunately, founders tend to like to just jumping jump, to jump in to it. Uh, the celebration of failure, let me try it and I will fail, and from that I will learn. Well, failure is very underestimated in the pain that it causes. And it's expensive. And it can be extremely expensive personally and uh, professionally. Um, there's lots of ways in which if we can arm you with a lot more of the knowledge that we've gained about how to avoid failure, we're never going to be able to eliminate the failure, but the more that we can educate you about the things that we've learned that are the bad decisions and you can think differently about them, that'll free you up to be able to devote your mindset to the things that we can't arm you for. And so because of that, that's where getting both of those roadmaps of yourself and also of the, the road ahead projecting yourself into it is a critical part of it. Part of the thing about understanding yourself is tuning into a lot of the very common human biases that almost everyone has, but that skew our decisions, that cause issues for it. And so you have a bunch of things when it comes to overconfidence, when it comes to only looking at the rosy view of the world and not thinking about the pitfalls and instead when we conquer the world and ignoring that there's going to be bumps in the road that you're going to have to recover from and just crafting plans that are going to assume the best. Those are a couple of the ones that are going to cause problems for you. Just that alone would cause issues, but then you layer on the natural human instinct to avoid conflict-ridden decisions, uh, discussions, to avoid the difficult conversations. Then you're not going to go and discuss, even if you realize that there are going to be pitfalls, let's discuss what happens when we hit those pitfalls, and therefore, what are going to be some of the implications of that? The avoidance of that is another one of the things that causes pitfalls for those founders. Um, then when you go and layer on, also, I'm just looking at, uh, there were half a dozen of them that I, uh, when I were thinking ahead of time of how to go and categorize them for everyone, um, the, the rose-colored glasses, they're just going to be looking at them, the, um, the avoidance of difficult conversations. Um, there's something that academia calls homophily that is birds of a feather flocking together. 
that we feel much more comfortable with the people like us that um, have a this similar background to ours or have a similar, similar style to ours. That's great in the social realm. That's great to figure out who you want to hang out with. When you're looking at founding a startup, that can be major problems. You're going to have two techies coming together rather than a techie and a business person or some other way in which it's going to be doubling down on things that you already have and leaving gaping holes. And that bias is a very common one that is one that we very much succumb to and that founders tend to succumb to. Um, And so all of these different things are things that if we don't tune into them ahead of time, then it's going to cause problems when we're at a fork in the road and we're making a decision. If we can tune into them, if we can inject in the head to go and check the heart, um, that's where we'll be able to follow what Steve Jobs was saying about some of his guidance around that. Um, And one of the recurring themes, as I was mentioning before, the data that I've collected when I go and test how stable is the founding team or how is growth facilitated by decisions or is the founder able to stay as the CEO of the venture? The recurring theme is that when head and heart diverge and the founder follows heart, those are going to be much more problematic. And so that's where you have to educate people about how to think more before they go and dive into those decisions. So you've touched on when a founder creates a company. What does the data show you in terms of taking on a co-founder? Should someone who's starting a business has the right emotional levels, the, the, the wherewithal to do it, is it better that he takes on a co-founder and... Because some people they they feel like Superman, they can take it all they can take it all on themselves, and they might be able to do. But what does the data show you? Do founding teams that have multiple founders um, succeed far past those that do it solo? Yeah. So broadly speaking, across the data, and then we can get into some of the whys behind the data. Um, this is coming from just to back up a drip. My data set I collected over a couple of decades, 20,000 founders worth of data, um, high potential ventures. So dominantly from tech and life sciences within the U.S. And when I analyzed this particular question within that data, what the data suggested was that the founding teams, the teams had a higher average performance compared to the solo founders. The solo founders had a higher variance of performance. And so you had some solo founders who at the top end of the performance could be within striking distance of what a team could achieve, but there was also far more of a likelihood that they were going to crater because the high variance also works at the bottom end of it, of having much worse performance than it. And when I took a look also within the data, how common is each of those that you found with the team or that you found solo, you do the Superman route, Mm -hmm. Um, only 16% of the ventures within tech and life sciences were solo founded. 84% of them were multiple people coming together, two or more founders who were coming together to co-found. And a key thing is understanding, back to the self-awareness, understanding whether you have what it takes to become a solo founder is a critical thing of being able to read whether you have it. So, for instance, I go and I walk through with uh, when students, when I'm doing this within class, um, we walk through the checklist approach, very simple approach to being able to see several things about how should I go about building my team. If you take a look at the idea that you initially have and you see what are the key success factors that we have to do well in order to be able to have a chance of succeeding at this, create a checklist of those, maybe having 10 of those things that you're going to have on the list there. Then go and check off for yourself which ones you already cover. For the unchecked ones, go through what is your game plan for being able to have those covered. These were on your high need list and how are you going to be able to make sure that you don't leave that gaping hole? 
And if you go through and you see a bunch of options for them, so there might be some options that are not co-founders. There might be that you find an advisor for one of them. It might be that you outsource the technological development early on, like other ways they could do it besides a co-founder. Mm-hmm. But if you see a cluster of a bunch of them that a person could fit into, bring it all together, and you also want the full focus that a co-founder can bring to it, the motivation that the co-founder can bring to it, then that suggests that you have to think a little bit more about going and getting a co-founder. If when you're going through that checklist and you check off almost everything between yourself and the non-co-founder options, then go right ahead and solo found. Mm-hmm. Or maybe sequence things where you might be able to later on bring in a hire. If it's not something you need right at the beginning, but you're going to need a little bit later on, solo found and then bring in a little bit later someone else who's going to be able to compliment you. But otherwise, if you have some gaping holes that you are only going to be able to really fill with having a co-founder on it, that's where you have to think about being one of the 84% that are co-founded. I was watching one of your videos on YouTube where you were discussing, and I would love for you to share it with the listening audience, when you talk about equity splits. So one would think that if you were to bring on a founder, a co-founder, and he would be taking you know, a good chunk of the work, so I'll take 50% of the company and you take 50% of the company. Is that the way to go about it? And if not, what is? Yeah, so you're heading into what are the core pitfalls that founding teams when they're trying to architect themselves get into. Let me just frame it first, big picture for that. Um, uh, what you were talking about with the equity split is a third category of three categories that I've found are the recurring decisions that founders tend to blow. They also happen to be the classical elephants in the room, the difficult conversations that are avoided until the elephant grows and tramples everything else that's, that's around there. The first of those is the relationship. So I call these the three R's to go and encapsulate them. Um, there's the relationships. How are you going and tapping where to go and find people and the type of relationship you're bringing to it? Is it good to co-found? with friends or with family? Or is that the worst type of way for you to go? Um, uh, is it better to do it with people you barely even know or with people who are prior coworkers? So you know, to separate those out is the first of the realms that the research shows is make or break for the founding team. The second of them after the first R, the relationships, is roles and decision making. So how are you going to split? Who's going to be CEO and the other roles within it? How are you collectively going to make decisions? What are the ones that the CEO is going to be able to make on his or her own? And what are the ones that everyone has to come together? Are you going to do it by a quote-unquote consensus, which often means gridlock, (laughs) needing unanimous, any one person has a veto and things like that. But other ways that that second of the R's, the roles and decision-making, is going to be architected within the team. And then the third of them, after relationships and roles and decision-making, is the rewards. And that's where the equity split fits into it. Um, I think the video that you've been watching would have been uh, possibly the one that I find is the prototypical uh, team of those is called the Zipcar team. Everyone's familiar now with uh, with Zipcar car sharing. And that was co-founded by two people who knew each other socially. Um, They'd actually gotten to know each other pretty well, two women whose kids shared a daycare center. And so they'd be chatting as they were getting to, you know, drop off and pick up their kids, and they got to know each other a little bit. So coming from the social side in terms of uh, how the glue was coming together on the relationships part of it, um, when it came to the equity split, um, one of them, Robin Chase, had heard a horror story from one of her mentors who had been a founder about how the discussion about the equity split, how they were going to split the ownership within his company, um, led to the team blowing up. And she said, I want this idea to work. I don't want us to blow up. And so let's just go and propose. And she went to her co-founder and said, let's just split it 50-50. Let's, uh, let's not have any kind of fisticuffs over what's going to be the ownership within this venture. And lo and behold, the co-founder agreed. 
And then Robin Chase threw herself into the venture, became the heart and soul of it, crafting the business plan, going to the car companies and crafting the partnerships with them, going parking lot by parking lot, resting one precious space to be able to put the zip cars in there. And her co-founder didn't even quit her day job, was barely even contributing nights and weekends to the venture. And Robin was the one who was creating all the value there, and yet her co-founder was the one who was benefiting equally from Robin's hard work. And it ended up eating up Robin when she was realizing what she had done there. And she called that 50-50 split the stupidest handshake that she had ever made. And to me, the Zipcar model captures at least three levels of the key decisions that founders are making. First, are you going to go and discuss this equity split? Robin just bypassed it. There was no real discussion about who's going to be doing the roles and decision-making, who's going to be the one contributing the value to this. Um, and so that was one of the pitfalls that she stepped into that's actually a very common one. Um, you find in some research that I did, uh, published with a co-author of mine a couple of years ago in uh, Management Science, we found that that quick and easy handshake tends to be very ill-fated. 80% of the people who do, who do the equal split barely discuss it. They discuss it for an hour or less, how much they're going to be splitting it. They just bypass the difficult conversation. Then the second of them is the equal split. Let's just, during these early uh, uh, days of uncertainty, let's just punt on who might be the valuable one who's going to be contributing to the venture. And so that's the second way that Zipcar, so the, the unthinking part of the split, the 50-50 part of the split, and then the third of them is the static part of the split, saying what we split right now is how it's going to be throughout the rest of the venture, regardless of whether Robin is the heart and soul, regardless of uh, who is contributing, who is scaling with the venture as it grows. Um, if we go through a pivot where we go and adjust our strategy, and one of us becomes obsolete, you know, it's not going to adjust to any of those kinds of changes there. And what we have to do is have founders realize that A, don't avoid the difficult conversation. B, have a legitimizing of the fact that maybe there's going to be unequal contributions that each of you is going to be making. And C, allow for the uncertainties that you still face. Brainstorm about the risks that are ahead. Brainstorm about the ways in which different scenarios might happen and then how that maybe should lead to an adjustment within the equity split. Um, and so those are the three ways that we have to have founders not succumb to the same things that Robin Chase succumbed to. Did Robin need her partner in that particular case to get the Zipcar business off the ground? So in the end, Robin did pretty well at being able to get a foundation in place for being able to, uh, to build Zipcar. Um, uh, there were all sorts of ways in which she had to scramble to undo. So for instance, one of the ways that when you do that kind of a split, you're tying your hands is that you don't have a bunch of equity to offer to replacements mm. for that co-founder to be able to give yourself some of the gunpowder to be able to uh, go to plan B and be able to bring other people in. Robin had to scramble a bunch because of having tied her hands. When you have a way that the equity will be able to adjust because you're realizing a dropout founder might happen to us or someone not scaling. There's some very common things that people can seize. There's something called vesting. If you're right. in this situation, go and use some vesting. If the person drops out of the venture, that you get back the equity that they haven't been able to earn until then. Tell and then you can go and replace them. Is. Tell everyone. So vesting is in some ways conditional ownership. That when you, and the most common uh, version of vesting, uh, about 80 to 90% of my data set is time-based vesting. That if over time that person sticks around for a certain number of years as a contributor within the venture, then they get a certain amount per year. 
And so it's using a proxy of involvement in the venture for how much you're adding value. Sometimes that's a good proxy, sometimes it's not a good proxy. Um, the other types of vesting that they have is milestone-based vesting. If you are in charge of one domain and we can define some clear milestones that you have to hit within that domain. So for instance, you are in charge of the technology development mm -hmm. and you get us to the milestone of the product is developed. Then you get a chunk of equity for succeeding at that. Um, or if you're the one who's in charge of fundraising, when we raise a new round of financing, then you get a little bit more of that equity. And so it's not taking it as a given that we know everything, that all the uncertainties are taken care of, like what Robin had gone and done. But instead it says, there's some unknowns that we have. Let's tie some things, whether it's the passage of time or to the achievement of milestones, let's tie the ownership to creating value at those. And then you're able to go and benefit from the work that you've been doing. So if Robin had a little bit more awareness in terms of these three R's, how do you think she would have went about it if she can go back in time? So I think it's awareness about the R's and also awareness of those biases we were talking about before. Um, she was looking at the rosy view of the world. When we go and conquer this car sharing market, then what is going to be the way in which we're going to be able to have you know, this, this team be hitting on all cylinders? to go and look at some of the uncertainties. She didn't have a conversation with her co-founder of, are you on board full-time like I am going to be? Well, one of the pitfalls that she would have been able to identify, one of the risks is that that co-founder is not going to come on board at all. Uh, one of the other things that she might have been uh, taking a look at is when it comes to the car companies. If I'm not able to go and have a partnership with them or the parking lots and things like that, how should that adjust to the speed at which we're going to be able to build the company to a bunch of the other things that we're going to need um, is in terms of the uncertainties? Robin, step back. Brainstorm, maybe with your co-founder, and this is a great way to be able to see, is this person value-added, about what are the five biggest risks that we face? Let's then prioritize them. Let's make sure that we're going to be able to tackle the biggest of them. You're never going to be able to take all the risk off the table. You shouldn't be going and creating an agreement that looks like a phone book. Um, there shouldn't be some kind of thing that you're trying to nail down everything, but at least to be able to go and take the top things on your list and be able to game plan around them. And also, even if they don't happen, You've been able to build the difficult conversation muscles with your co-founder. You've been able to go and partner together in this small microcosm of working through difficult issues. And then every time in the future that you're going to hit a difficult issue, you'll be much better suited to be able to go and work through them. But if you avoid that conversation like she did, you're not going to be able to go and be able to partner to be able to um, have it become a team effort to be able to game plan around those issues. What about those that say having those very difficult conversations in the beginning might cause the business to, to not take off from day one. You're immediately causing friction where I'm willing to perhaps have those difficult conversations down the line, but if I know if I have it day one, it's almost as if the other co-founder is going to think there's a, little, there's a, a struggle for power already, right? The person wants 70%. Yeah, I'm out. Find someone else. What mm -hmm. do you say to that? Yeah, no, that, that's the big worry that founders have that lead them to avoid the elephants in the room. So let's not discuss with the relationships one how the fact that we are best friends might affect the relationship within the venture when things blow up. Uh, what is going to be the problems with it? Uh, with the roles and stuff, let's just go and punt on it about we'll both be CEOs, we'll be co-CEOs, and they're going to be avoiding each of those difficult conversations. You learn a lot from uh, having them. You learn a lot about the other person. You learn a lot about yourself and your ability to have those kinds of things. And if you can take at least one of those difficult conversations and have them early on, 
if the biggest thing that you're worried about is the is the rewards one, like Robin was, well, then take the relationships one. Take the, the roles one and mm-hmm. at least take some version of a difficult conversation to see whether you're compatible with that person. Um, it's just like early on, like within a marriage. If you didn't go and uh, be able to have some kind of an issue where you had to work through it together with your co-founder of life, then you haven't really seen whether we're going to be compatible when we hit those. You want to find those out as early as possible. You want to find it out during the dating phase of being a co-founder or during the dating phase of your co-founder of life when you can hit the undo key, when you can back up and be able to see that we're not compatible. And so at least finding one of the R's to be able to go and take on is something that is critical to do in the early days of the venture. How do you look at idea versus execution? Sometimes you'll have a co-founder that brings the idea to the table, and then you have the other one who's primarily executing on that idea. And if you ask the idea person, they'll say, yeah, the person could never have executed without my idea. And then you take the person who's executing into a room and he'll say, the idea is great, but if you don't execute on it, it's just going to sit in its infancy stage. Which one is more important in the relationship? So the idea is something, but founders, especially the idea of founders, as you were just saying, tend to overestimate the value of the idea. Uh, we get one lens in it through looking at my data on the equity splits. There is an idea premium within the equity split. The person who had the idea um, is coming in with a little bit more equity than the person who didn't have the idea. One of the things to appreciate, though, is that not all ideas are the same. There are world-beating, intellectual property-protected ideas, and then there are me-too ideas. There are ones that this single person birthed, and then there's ones that the rest of the team helped own, things like that. So it's really a spectrum of um, the value of those ideas and how much they are really going to advantage the venture and things like that. But then after that, there are so many ideas out there that hit the dustbin of history because execution wasn't there. And so execution is by far the dominant thing that's going to make the idea happen. Also, every founder that I run into almost, um, they overestimate the uniqueness of their idea. That I ask them, who's your competitor? And they say, we don't have any competition. <laughs> We're the first ones in this market with the idea because it's so unique. And then when we burrow into it, there's lots of competition. A lot of times there's investors out there who will say, well, this is the 12th idea that I've heard this month <laughs> that's in this vein. There's all sorts of ways in which founders tend to overestimate the idea in a lot of ways, and especially when you're the idea person there. And so it has to be all the execution that is going to be a lot more of what's writing on it. Um, there's also a lot of ways in which when you are learning about where you missed the market, the classical you know, term now, pivot, that's you know, entered the lexicon, um, pivoting means that you missed the market initially, that the idea wasn't on target. And it's very typical that you're going to have to understand where you were off, adjust the idea. And that part of the process is probably more valuable than the original idea was. And so the ability to be agile, the ability to take off the rose-colored glasses, be able to see where the disconnect is, be able to see the signals from the market, and then be able to adjust is, to me, the far more valuable entrepreneurial skill than necessarily coming up with the idea, unless it's one of those world-beating, protected, a single-person birthed kind of an idea. You mentioned pivoting. How do you advise businesses that have started, that have hit some roadblocks? When is it a good time to pivot? Is there ever a good time? Or, and, and versus just quitting, right? People always say never quit, but sometimes it makes sense to quit. How do you weigh all of those options? Yeah, so there's multiple levels of uh, layers of what you're getting into. Um, uh, entrepreneurs and like the overall entrepreneurial culture celebrates founder persistence. 
celebrates persisting no matter what is happening, celebrating regardless of the pitfalls you've hit, that you've got to keep going with it. And there is a lot of devastating persistence that happens out there. Uh, people over-persisting through a bad idea, not reading the signals that you've missed the market. And this is one of the key arts of entrepreneurship. There is such thing as under-persistence. You hit the first bump in the road and you throw in the towel. But there's over-persistence of sticking around for a decade without knowing whether your idea is there. And being able to read a bunch of the different pieces of it, the market signals, your personal stage of life, your suitability for being able to have the checkboxes that we were talking about with the skills that are, are needed and things like that. Those are all of the things that have to enter into that decision about whether to pivot or how are we reading the market and other things like that. It's also one of the places that there's a peril of another thing that is celebrated in entrepreneurship, and that is passion. Now you ask any entrepreneur, you know, is passion a critical thing of what you're doing? Absolutely, it's part of my magic. You know, we celebrate, you know, the passionate entrepreneurs who can go and convince the, someone, an investor or others that you're going to be able to blow through a wall, uh, this brick wall that no one else could get through. So being able to, with your passion, be able to do that. Unfortunately, there's a lot of perils to passion also. It's going to be more likely in your passion that you're going to misread where the market is. I think this is a great idea. I think there's a huge market out there that's going to want it also. Being able to see the signals that, no, you are off and have to pivot. One of the critical things around that. The passion for becoming an entrepreneur a lot of times will lead you to misread yourself. I'm all very suited. I've gotten all the career skills, the checklist. I check off every box on it. Well, if you've especially never been a founder before, you're not, you're, you don't know about the things that you are missing on the way to being able to do it. The personal side, so we're actually going through the three things. Uh, your opening question was about being able to figure out uh, whether and when uh, to, right. to be able to found and things like that. These are the three domains that passion is going to cloud a founders being able to evaluate it. There's the business circumstances, there's the career circumstances, and then there's the personal circumstances. So, of course, my spouse is going to support my going without a paycheck for who knows how long. Mm -hmm. um, of course, I can make it on the uh, almost no savings that I have saved up from this. Um, there's all sorts of ways in which in the passion we're going to railroad through all the personal issues also. Um, and those are just examples of when you're starting to head into founding, the things you have to reevaluate at each step of the way when you're taking a look at did I hit the market or did I not? Am I suited for the next stage of the venture when my career might not have prepared me for being able to scale this venture, even though I was able to get it off the ground? And then the last piece in terms of the, the personal side of it, um, if right now we're running on fumes, I've missed it, we're not bringing in any revenues, you might have to either pivot or fold, but not persist. And that's where you have to be able to see through the passion to be able to see a lot more clearly about what the circumstances are. You mentioned before, and I think it comes up, especially in the Orthodox Jewish community, um, co-founding with family and friends, particularly family. What do you do when someone calls you up and says, hey, I could start a venture with a first cousin, a brother-in-law, um, a brother, even a parent, and some people go into business with their wife. Do you recommend that? And what does the data show you? What's the outcome there? So the data are the unthinking, unfortunately, driving a lot of this. Um, there's actually in, in almost every culture that I've been in, I remember getting to China for the first time and discovering that there is a phrase that every culture has about the perils of mixing the personal and the professional. It's become such a well-worn, unfortunate lesson that people have learned that every culture has the way to be able to go and capture that. And yet in my data, and again, this is in high potential ventures, is not family business or anything like that. This is in tech and life sciences. More than half of the ventures were founded with friends and family. 
And the data also back up that is the most perilous. The least stable of all of the types of founding teams are the ones that you founded with the person you knew socially. It's in fact even less stable than founding with an acquaintance or a stranger. People that you don't know that you have to start getting to know. Essentially, when we're coming in with friends and family, we're starting in negative territory. We're starting with baggage already from the social relationship. Among other things, we find it a lot tougher to have those difficult conversations with the people closest to us. A little bit of irony in that, but when we're talking about which one of us is going to be the better one to be the CEO, which one of us is really going to be the more valuable, we're going to punt on it even more so when it is people that are already close to us. And that means that we're going to have those perils of avoiding the difficult conversations, not looking at the downsides and being able to plan around them. And that's where we're going to be causing a lot higher risks rather than reducing risks by going and founding with people like that. Um, there's also a bunch of things that we go and make about bold assumptions about people we already know. So if you think about trust and you say that I trust my best friend, Ellie, what does that, what does that mean to you? It means he won't do wrong by me. He'll have my back. He'll right. be able to do those things. When you talk about a co-founder, when you talk about a coworker, and you say that you trust that coworker, what are you saying about that person? This is the first time on Coach Money I'm put on the spot. But if a coworker is going, that he's going to look out for me, that he'll he'll fill in when I'm not available. He'll be there for me. Okay, be there in what sense? Be there for emotional support or being able to perform? Perform on the performance side. So you're talking about competence. I have trust in his competence. Correct. I have that he's going to be able to keep, you know, taking that competence and turning it into results and things like that. Is it the same thing to say that I trust the competence of my coworker and that I trust that you're going to have my back as my friend? Probably not. No. Those are two very different things there. And unfortunately, we make the bold assumption when we're co-founding with friends and family, we have the trust, we will have the trust. But then there's the rude awakening about, yeah, I had my back, but totally not performing, totally not able to come through on the results and on the competence and things like that. And then it's even more devastating when we have that, the, the, burble, the, the bubble burst about how the trust that we thought we had actually is a very different thing within this realm. And so that's just one example of how, where we have those surprises across the two of them. The way I capture it, like within the research and uh, when I'm crystallizing it, call that you're playing with fire when you are going and co-founding with people that you know socially. You are hoping that playing with fire will forge a stronger set of irons. You're gonna be able to create something stronger. But actually when you're playing with fire, you're also taking a bigger risk of something blowing up of getting burned by playing with fire. And a key thing of playing with fire is A, avoiding the difficult conversations. That's gonna to lead to the pitfalls that are then gonna be burning you. And also avoiding the fact that if things go sour in the venture, is that gonna be devastating for your personal relationship? Very likely that that's gonna be very devastating for you. But yet you wouldn't have had those discussions that can help you avoid that devastation. And the combination of those two, about avoiding the difficult conversations even more with the people you know best, and that when things blow up, it's going to be even more devastating to that relationship, that's playing with fire. That's a big gap between the two of those things. And we have to go and work with founders to be able to reduce the playing with fire gap. How can we go and push up, especially in those situations, the chance that you're going to tackle the difficult issues? How can we push down on the other side of it? How can we push down the risk that you're taking that damage is going to be devastating to you? And so some of them are involving a third party to be able to go and push up the chances that you're going to have those difficult conversations and have them productively. Um, there are things that you can use metaphors from our personal lives. Founder prenup 
to be able to protect you from being able to have the, uh, the devastation that's going to be the personal realm. If we are fighting with each other, this disaster plan, what is that going to look like? Who is going to step away from the venture? in order to be able to have the relationship continue and be able to have the venture be able to still uh, get what it needs uh, within, within the team. And that kind of disaster thing, you think about how little it is that people create prenups within their personal lives, those port over to co-founders. Co-founders will avoid having discussions around those, as you were highlighting before, the difficult conversations around prenup types of issues. And that is even more critical when you're founding with friends and family. That's why it's the less stable team. But if you go and take a look at your risks, you grapple with them, and then you game plan in actionable ways, then actually that's where you're going to be able to get stronger as a team. So friends, let me give you a microcosm. When I was working in venture capital, I found in the firm that I was in, and I found since then as pretty common across the industry, they would invest in the firm that I was in in almost anything. They were a technically a tech investor, but their biggest deal had been kitchens, etc., like a retailer. Um, they would technically be early stage investment, but when I walked in, my first deal I was working on was a, a management buyout of a dental supply company, later stage type of stuff. So they would do almost anything. Wherever the deal was, they would go and take a look at it. They had one rule of what they would not go and invest in. That rule was no couplepreneurs, no significant others who were going and co-founding together. They'd gotten burned by the playing with fire and the problems that it caused for that. And they said, we're not going in there anymore. And I came to appreciate a little bit the wisdom of that, but also the pitfalls of that also for the investor. To me, if a founding team comes to me, significant others or family and things like that. They say, we acknowledge that we have a bunch of risks. These are the ways in which we've had the difficult conversation. These are the ways in which we created firewalls when we were playing with fire. This is the prenup that we've created to be able to have a disaster plan and be able to do it. That says to me, these are rock stars. They're able to grapple with the human dynamic. They're able to go and understand their biases. They can game plan together. They had the difficult conversations. I want to invest in them. I don't want to run in the other direction. And especially if all the other investors are running the other direction, I'm not going to have competition for this deal. So when I go and teach my students also, I have some future investors in the room. I tell them, this is where you can find gold. If you can find the founding team that acknowledges the risks, acts on them, that is where you can be able to have a lot more facilitating a rock star team and being able to have the gains that come from that. Don't run in the other direction from it. But if you're finding a founding team that didn't grapple with the risks, didn't game plan, that's where you're going to find a lot more of the less stable team and a lot more of the getting burned because of what they did. Very interesting. Wow. We interrupt this podcast with an ad. An ad helps pay our bills. This week's podcast of Kosher Money is actually sponsored by the team at Thank You Hashem. They've done really cool things. They were blown away by the fact that I only found out two years later that Noam Wasserman and I were on the same Mishpacha cover, and they said, we're going to sponsor this episode. So tyhnation.com, check them out. They have a really cool website. They have Hashem's mailbox. I love their tagline, a grateful life is a grateful life. I asked them, what do you want me to promote? They said, just tell people to thank Hashem. Stop whatever it is you're doing, whether you're in the car, you're cooking in the kitchen, um, you're rolling in your money, whatever it is that you do, stop and just thank Hashem. Pick something in your life that you're thankful for. Head over to tyhnation.com. They have a really cool collection of swag and newsletters, merch, music videos. Check them out. And now back to this week's episode. When someone's starting a business and they're 
thinking, should I take on an investor or bootstrap, use my own money? How do you guide them? So this is where, let's start layering in. We have the biases. We have the decisions. This is where we have to get into motivations. So what was motivating this founder to take on the weight of the world on his or her broad shoulders and be able to create that opportunity? A lot of times, the reason that the founder is doing that is because he wants to get a little more control over things. He was working for someone else, wasn't able to take an idea and be able to run with it. The mother company didn't want to be able to create that idea. And he wants to be able to have this become something that he can bring that vision to reality, build the product to be able to do it, see the impact on the customer uh, by having that. That is where you're motivated because of control reasons to be able to have a little bit more control over the idea and the building of the company. That is actually a very different motivation from what a lot of other founders have around creating value for yourself, being able to do it for the financial reasons, being able to have that equity stake we were talking about become a lot more valuable. Or financial um, freedom, meaning the sense that yeah. they're, they're not mashubit to someone in a larger company. Exactly. So a lot of layers of that has a little bit of a mix of the two. So not mashubit could be on the control side and bring the idea, or it could be that you're able to have, when you create value, you're able to gain from it in a financial way. Um, but, but those happen to be motivations that first-time founders especially come in saying, I want both. It's very seductive to be able to say, I'm not going to have to face a trade-off between the two of them. I want to be able to be what I call in the vernacular, I want to be both rich and king. I want to be able to control all those ideas and be able to have this become a world-beating, very valuable kind of a company. And a key thing about a bunch of things we've already talked about, but in particular, the one that you're talking about with the investor side, is that at key forks in the road, you're having to choose between one or the other. So for instance, let's go back to where we were starting with solo founding. Well, if you want to be able to control all of the ideas, control all the equity, own 100% of the venture, then you should, if you are king-oriented, you're control-oriented, be a solo founder. If you want, though, you know that you're missing some pieces, you're not going to be able to grow as valuable a venture if you're the only one who's developing it, you're going to have to share some control with someone else and also share some of the equity with that person. Then you go down the fork in the road of not solo founding that the king founder would want to do, but you go down the rich direction, which is go and bring in value-added co-founders, ones who will fill my holes, ones who can be able to pick up when I am having a tough day at the office, be able to buck me up. Um, all those other ways that you're going to be able to grow maybe a more valuable venture, be able to move a little bit faster also and be able to create it. Um, and so that's just one example where you have those motivations leading into very different directions for it. If we take the one that you're talking about, self-funding is the direction that you want to go if you want to be able to control things. You don't want to sell of, uh, some pieces of your venture. You don't want to have to create a board of directors, which is what investors are going to be wanting. A uh, critical thing at the top of the organization that's, cr that's controlling a lot of key strategic decisions and also the decision around who should be running the show, who should be the CEO and things like that. If you want control, don't go and invite those board members in. Don't go invite those investors in and give up a bunch of the stakes to them that are going to mean that you're going to have to share some control. If you want to grow the biggest, most valuable venture, bring in their money. That's going to be the rocket fuel that will enable you to be able to grow a, b a bunch faster than you would be able to do if you're on your own. You'll be able to use that to then attract very strong other hires to it. There's going to be a lot of other things that are going to be enabled by bringing those in, but you're going to have to share a bunch of the control. You're going to have to give up the reins on a lot of decisions, and the board might decide that you're going to have to give up the reins on the CEO position. Mm. You might no longer be at the top of your venture. My research, uh, my original, my first ever paper was on this, um, about what leads to founders getting fired as the parent of their baby. And as it turns out, it happens to be the things that founders think are their successes. 
are going to be the things that they celebrate. One of those is when they finish product development. Huge milestone within the venture. You're now a product to go and be able to deploy, sell to customers. Another one of them is when you raise each round of financing. On that success of developing that product, we were able to convince an investor that there's enough here that they should really put their money into it. Well, as it turns out, when you hit that milestone of finishing product development, when you hit that milestone of raising a round of financing, yes, you are celebrating success within the venture. You are also celebrating that the chance that you're going to be replaced as the CEO is going to go up dramatically. Essentially, your demise has been bred by those successes that you're doing. Why is that? Well, first, when you hit that milestone, you finish product development. Now you have to build a company. Now that tech founder or the person who was the best person to be able to during the early days of it be leading the charge within a little project team. Now that person is going to have to worry about sales, marketing, being able to trace the finances in a much more complex way, a lot of other things there. And usually those tech founders or the early scientific founders are not suited to be able to go and add those on. And so there's now a dramatic change in the challenges that the CEO has to face. And so you are no longer the best one suited to be able to lead the charge going forward. And those investors that you just took in know that very well. Hmm. They know forward-looking what is going to be the need here. Does this person fit this? And if their evaluation is that it isn't, they also, getting back to the second piece of it, when you raise the money from them, they now control board seats. They now have a lot more control over who's going to be the key players within the company. And they, once you hit the tipping point, if they own more than 50% of the company, they can now pull the trigger on replacing you as that CEO. And that is one of the biggest make or break stages for the company about is this going to be a smooth transition to a new generation? There's all sorts of ways in which the founder, if they're bought into it, can facilitate that. But especially for the control-oriented founder, they're not going to be bought into it. If they didn't reflect on what is my motivation, they would have made the decisions to go down and get the investor money. And then that is taking them to completely away from what motivated them to become a founder to begin with. Hmm. To be able to have that control, be able to bring it to realization, and be able to have the idea hit the market with their version of it and things like that. And so it's not that the bootstrapping, like self-funding, or taking investor money is a wrong decision. It's that you have to look at it through the lens of your motivations. What are you going to celebrate at the end of the day? Is it going to be having a smaller company where I was able to be the one to be able to bring the vision to fruition? Or is it that I would regret if my company didn't get as big as possible with mine not necessarily being the one running the show, but where I've been able to have some kind of an impact on it? And if you are the control-oriented and you get investor money, or you are the rich-oriented and you don't take the outside money, each of those are the wrong decision. It's the misfit with your motivations. Mm -hmm. That's the critical thing for being able to do that. And by the way, in terms of the founder getting replaced, um, uh, three quarters of the replacements were founders being fired. When we're talking about the self-awareness of do I fit? Should I be looking for someone to hand the reins over? Only a quarter of founders are self-aware enough of the roadmap ahead and how it's going to be changing of their own skills and things like that to wave their hand and say, please replace me. It's going to be better for the company. It might be better for my own equity stake. Three quarters of it is the founder being fired by the investors and by the board of directors. And if he was leading with his mind there, he would say, this is better for my equity, right? Because I'm leaving a company. It's going to be in better hands. My value or, or, or my ownership in the company is going to increase in value. So I'm better off stepping aside and letting someone in there. But it's, it's probably a very emotional decision because he's invested so much time. There's a lot of sweat equity that's put into that where it makes sense, us being humans, that most people will have to be ripped out of that chair versus walking by yeah, themselves. Yeah, so you're getting back into where we started with the head versus heart. Right. Like all heart-driven, you're wrenching my baby away from me. 
that is going to be the most heart driven of the reactions you're going to have. Um, and so that's where it might be that the head could be telling you all sorts of ways in which I'll be richer for it. It's going to be better for the company and things like that. But if the heart is recoiling, there's all sorts of ways in which the head is not going to win. You mentioned hiring and businesses spend so much on hiring. If you hire the wrong person, it's very costly. What are tips you give founders, CEOs, hiring managers that they should keep in mind to hire well and to make sure they're hiring the right candidate? Okay, so there are three in particular that I found, and this was a little bit my working together with one of the world experts on hiring, a guy named Jeff Smart, who founded a, fir a firm around He does sound smart. Around that. Uh, yeah, it was a great last name. Um, the... Uh, uh, several of the things that Jeff highlights fit very much that I was seeing. He was looking at larger companies around it, but it actually happens to fit for three of them uh, with what I was seeing with ven within ventures. First, this goes back to the bias that we talked about at the beginning with homophily, birds of a feather flocking together. Um, within ventures, people talk about fit. I'm looking for someone who's going to fit with me. Well, that's a great euphemism for homophily. A great euphemism for finding someone who looks just like me, who's not going to be filling in my holes, who's not going to be complimenting me. And if anything, it's going to lead to higher tensions because we're both going to want to be in that same box. We're going to both going to want to be making those same decisions within it. And so a lot more back to the checklist approach, being able to make sure that this person is going to be adding value. Great to have the compatibility as long as it is filling in a new box for you and not double checking another box. Um, and so being conscious of the perils of homophily when it comes to hiring um, is one of the key pieces of it. Um, another one, and this is the one that's most directly affected by uh, Jeff's research on it, um, this is what he had focused on, um, is the tendency that people have when they're interviewing to have hypotheticals, to pose to the person, well, what if this happened? What would you do? And Jeff's research showed that that has zero correlation with how the person's going to perform. The thing that is much, highly, much more highly correlated is past actions. Look at the actual, look at the, the talk list, look at not what they're going to hypothesize around it. When you were in this situation where you had to grapple with something, where you were in the unknown or you had to make a trade-off or something like that, how did you deal with it? That he found was far more highly predictive of how that person was going to be performing. Um, and so those are several of the things that you have to be able to get past the natural things that how people hire um, and be able to see how, no, we have to be able to work much harder to be able to do a lot of those things a lot better um, than it is typically done. Um, the final one is that a lot of times it is very much the instinct to go and develop a set of questions when you're going to be doing the hiring, things you're going to probe and go question one, question two, question three. Big mistake. What you have to be doing is listening to the person and then delving deeper into each of those answers that you get from it. It should be much more, not a sequence through it, but if you were to plot your questions during a, an interview, go through a tree where you have, there's the main trunk, then you have a branch off of it, per, following up on this piece of it that will really give you a lot more insights around that person. Then possibly something they said there of going even deeper into that am I, part. Am I doing that in this interview? So I, you do I a wanna, little bit. Okay, good. <laughs> I want to make sure I'm not following this uh, skeleton I have here. Um, but that's where you will learn a lot more about the person. You'll get beyond the surface answers that they prepared. You'll be able to get to what did you actually do in that kind of a situation. That probing will be a lot more beneficial for you. It'll be better to do fewer questions deeper mm. than for you to go and just do surface in that sequence kind of questions. And so that's a third of the things that, uh, that we can go and put on people's radar for how to hire better. Awesome. So what do you do when someone comes to you and says, I need help with my business? I see a ton of restaurants 
because I'm in the food business, but I see a ton of restaurants open up and people in my social circles are saying, hmm, why did, do they know that the restaurant before them and before them, before them shut down within six months and lo and behold, seven months later, are, are people not asking for advice before they get into businesses like that? I know every, people like to own restaurants, but it's not just a restaurant specific issue. People sometimes get backed in and they need to create some sort of business and revenue. I get it. But should people be asking others that have gone through it for more advice? And is that where this issue is stemming from? No, absolutely. You should definitely tap people who are two or three, four steps ahead of you. Um, building your personal board of advisors, people who will be the devil's advocates, uh, people who will be the connecto rather than the azer to you will be going and pushing back and making sure you're thinking through your passion, through a bunch of the other biases that we were talking about there, that you're looking at the rosy view of the world in terms of what you would bring to a restaurant. Are your skills really that much better than the last person who tried to do it? The passion that's going to cloud your evaluating the business environment. Um, how many restaurants like this are there? Um, you're assuming that yours is going to be unique, but wait through the customer's eyes? Are you just like the other ones that are out there? And so a bunch of the things that we've talked about are the structure that I put people through um, when I'm teaching them in a class, uh, my Founders Dilemmas class that I've taught now 25 times. This is the, the, the same kind of sequence that we go through with it. Or when I'm advising like individual founders, those kinds of things about A, can we tune into your biases? B, do you have the roadmap? C, do you have the checklist of all the things that are going to be the fundamental underpinnings of the things that you're going through there? And then once we have that, then we're able to pull apart a lot better. Well, where are you weak? Where are you strong? In the ways that you're weak, can you fill that in? Are there ways in which that's going to be uh, going to going to be a death knell for you? Um, and so those are the kinds of things that I'm walking them through, and that hopefully those advisors are a couple of steps ahead of them that uh, they're going to be able to do that from a more dispassionate perspective, from a more informed perspective, through the roadmap of themselves and through the roadmap of the venture. So you've written a book. It says here it's the founders' dilemmas, anticipating and avoiding the pitfalls that can sink a startup, and it's based off of how many. Uh, so at companies? the time that I wrote it, um, yeah. uh, that was when I had the first decade worth of data collection. And so that was 10,000 founders that I was basing it on back then. Oh, wow. So if someone came to you and said, I have your book, what other books would you recommend I read if I wanted to start a business? Uh, sure. So when I think about educating, this is something we've built into at the like, YOU when we're, uh, when we're building like the entrepreneurship side of our curriculum within the MBA program and things like that. I think of it as being a three-legged stool of what we have to be able to turn founders out. Um, and that's in addition to like some of the other intangibles that we try to go and do. One of them is the product side. And that's what people tend to focus on the most. That's where most education uh, has focused. There's also the financing side as the second of the legs on the stool. And the third one is the people side. And so if we look at the product one, the uh, one of the things that enabled the academic knowledge of the product issues to, uh, to be developed a lot better was a little bit more than a decade ago. Um, there was a book that came out called Lean Startup. Eric Reese was the one who wrote sure. it. Um, and there's been a few follow-ups since then, but it's still in some ways the, the core Bible, if you will, uh, the old, uh, of being able to understand how uh, with the product issues you can be able to see how much you can tune into the market, how much you can make sure that uh, you're doing the right testing and things like that. There's still lots of perils to it. A lot of these biases we've been talking about that the lean startup isn't going to get rid of. If you are seeking confirmation of the rosy glasses, then you're not going to be doing the testing the right way. And those are some of the ways that um, you have to be able to make sure that you're going to be able to tune into the right way to be able to do it. But within the product realm, I would say a lean startup is still a great one to be able to go to there. Uh, when it comes to the financing one, um, if you're going to be facing some of those forces in a row that we 
we've talked about, professional investors might be interested or um, any people are going to be creating a term sheet with you where you're going to have to have like an, an official investment and things like that. Mm. Or you're going to be trading that off of going it alone. Um, there's a book called Venture Deals that was written by um, a prominent venture capitalist named Brad Feld. Um, it's a very nice, concise uh, treatment of a lot of the ins and outs of everything you're going to have to be facing um, when it comes to the, the, the financing side of the business. Um, within the people part, unfortunately, I had to head into this domain because mm. there wasn't any other work that was being done, no data or anything like that. Um, so I'm a little bit harder to recommend. I would say thinking a little bit more broadly about the people part, you can see leadership is going to be a critical piece, being able to tune into a bunch of uh, leadership things. So for instance, when I was starting to manage people back when I was actually a real person, <laughs> when I was working uh, before I went back for my MBA, um, one of the books that was a critical thing of my being able to get through like a next stage was Becoming a Manager, uh, written by Linda Hill, who then uh, became a colleague of mine at Harvard Business School. Uh, but her book long years before that was a critical thing of being able to understand how do you go from being a doer to being a facilitator of other people's doing. Um, there was also another book then, a little bit more academic, uh, but it was written by a duo called uh, named Hersey and Blanchard uh, about situ situational leadership. How do you develop people? Early on, how do you also balance micromanaging versus managing them? Um, and so how to go through that, taking someone who is just starting to learn something, how do you more intensely be able to monitor them, meet with them more frequently, be able to diagnose over time how you can give up the reins, be able to give them a little bit more of the ownership around it. Over time, how you diagnose whether you have to step back to the earlier stage or whether you can go and give up a little bit more of the reins, et cetera. And so those are the couple of the ones in the, in the people realm. Um, final one that I would add in a little bit, actually two uh, that I would add in when we're designing the curriculum. One of them is understanding entrepreneurial history, understanding the waves of change that open up opportunities, understanding a little bit more of the pattern recognition of um, where things are going. And so being able to tune into some of the historian side of it is actually one of the things at USC that we built within my center was an entrepreneurial history wing of it, uh, because it's a critical thing of understanding that the world isn't static. How does it change? What are the waves that lead to opening and foreclosing opportunities and things like that? Um, the final one that I find entrepreneurs are often blindsided by is the legal piece. They try to shove that to their back of their mind. There's all sorts of ways in which they will blunder and then have a really tough time hitting the aduki um, mm -hmm. on a bunch of legal things. And so um, entrepreneurship uh, in terms of the legal set of challenges, uh, Connie Bagley, who is a, also a colleague of mine at HBS, um, wrote one of the key books on that, on entrepreneurial law. Um, and so that's another one of the ones that I think at least arm yourself well enough to know what questions to ask a lawyer. Mm. Like at what points am I signing something that could get me into trouble and I should pull back on the reins on that? Um, what are the terms that are going to be thrown around at a meeting and I'm not going to be familiar with them and that's going to be at my peril? That's you have to get at least to that basic level of the legal side of entrepreneurship. Um, and then you'll know when to seek better help or uh, when to be able to say, okay, I think I can tackle this on my own. This is awesome. We'll try our best to put these uh, books or links to these books as, what, uh, as well as to your book in the show notes. So most people will never see the inside of a startup. They're not going to be founders. Are there any lessons they should learn from founders we've been discussing and any closing remarks? No, sure. Absolutely. So uh, let me go to start this off uh, to the slide that was the last slide that I used to show my classes. Um, it was taking uh, a quote from the Gemara about, I learned a bit from my teachers, more from my peers, and the most from my students. 
Um, this is the biggest example that I have of it. Um, the second year that I was teaching my course back in 2010 at HBS, um, I had a student come by. One of the joys that I have of teaching is being able to have one-on-ones with the students, grapple with their biggest dilemmas together with them. Um, I had a student come by. I thought it was going to be one of those typical things, whether it's the founding dilemmas they're facing or uh, some career issues and things like that. Student took a, sat down in the chair across from me and took a look in the eye, and he said to me, Noam, I'm never going to be a founder but your course has already changed my marriage. Hmm. And that was my reaction at first. I was like, I didn't understand where he was coming from. Um, I thought at first I was going to just apologize of snookering him into taking the wrong course. <laughs> if you're never going to be a founder, what are you doing in founder's dilemmas? Um, but then this is always where I can learn the most from my, my Talmudim. Uh, probe, learn from him and things like that. So I said, David, tell me more. And as it turns out, he was a newlywed. Mm-hmm. He had recently gotten married to his co-founder of life. And he said that they had been struggling with a bunch of things, um, roles within the couplehood, who's going to be doing what. Um, uh, they had decided, let's go and split things equally, back to Robin Chase and the 50-50 split. And so when it comes to cleaning and cooking, well, one night I will do the cleaning and you'll do the cooking, and then the next night we will switch. And he said what that led to is that every other night it was a dirty apartment or it was burnt food. This isn't working to go and be doing this equally. <clears throat> one of the other things was how do we make decisions together. Till now, we've been solo operators. We're making dual career decisions at a key inflection point in life. When I'm finishing school, when we're heading out to figure out where we're going to live and what we're going to be doing, things like that. And they were having real problems being able to make those decisions. And he said now, as he was in Founders Dilemmas, as he was seeing how founding teams were grappling with these kinds of issues, the roles in decision making, when they were you know, being able to allocate those types of things, he would walk in at the end of the day, he said, and he would say, honey, No one forced us to go and have this difficult conversation around roles in class today. Let's try it out here at home. Mm. Or this is a way in which we saw that founders don't succumb to the, uh, the seductive equality when we're splitting things. And this is where they find a better way to play to each other's strengths and be able to uh, get away from the scoreboard and be able to be approximately within range as long as everyone's contributing the best that they can around the things that they're strong in and things like that. And he said it was starting to work magic within the couplehood. And so he was essentially saying to me, Noam, you think you're teaching an entrepreneurship class? You're teaching a life class. And so that's when I started, he burst me out of my focus on founders that I'd had for a decade and had me realize that these human issues, there are all sorts of lessons that we can learn from founders who are grappling with this on a daily basis that we can then apply to our personal relationships, to our career decision-making, to a bunch of these other things in other walks of life. And that's what essentially from the last decade, that's been my focus, the entrepreneurial mindset, what things we can go and instill to be able to bring those out. Um, it was the inception of my second book, Life as a Startup, to be able to bring a bunch of these lessons to those types of things. I realized along the way that when we grapple with those types of issues, just like he was doing, we put a Band-Aid on it. We just try to paper over it and try to get past that. Founders, when they are grappling with these things day after day, they have to find solutions. And a lot of times those solutions are a little bit counterintuitive. They're a bit different than what we might have expected. Mm -hmm. And because of that, if we can learn from them and find a different derech, we can find another way to be grappling with these types of things that's going to be more successful for us, that's where we can take a lot of those lessons and be able to be a lot more successful at it. Terrific. Thank you so much, Dan Wasserman. Oh, thank you so much. Atzlacha Rava with the rest of the podcast and with all the Cheshavah work that you're doing. Thank you so much. By the way, that jingle is only for this episode. We're getting rid of it. But that was an amazing episode. Thank you, Dean Wasserman. If you are not a subscriber on YouTube, you are in the majority because 
We have about 650 subscribers so far, but we would love for you to join. Head over to YouTube, search Living L'Chaim. My brother Yaakov is behind that, and other types of podcasts are coming out. You'll see them maybe by the time you subscribe. It'll be up there. Hit us up on WhatsApp. 914-222-5513. The comments are coming in heavy. We love it. You can send a voice note. Tell us what you love. Tell us what you hate. Tell us what you want to see in the next episode. We really care about your feedback. If you have any questions for Zevi and his team, info at livingsmarterjewish.org. Head over there if you did not grab the budgeting worksheet. We spoke about Living Smarter Jewish. We spoke about Living L'Chaim. We spoke about YouTube. We gave you the WhatsApp phone number. Until next time, keep your money kosher. The Kosher Money Podcast is hosted by Ellie Langer, run by Zevi Woolman, Ellie Langer, and myself, Yaakov Langer, and it is produced by Living L'Chaim. For more awesome podcasts and shows, check out livinglechaim.com. Check us up on YouTube or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Living L'Chaim.